Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, got a little bit of a wacky scenario going on today, so let me break it down for all of you. Uh, this intro is being recorded after we already did the interview. Um, Crystal was with us for part of the interview, but then she had a family emergency, so she had to rush out. So uh, most of this is going to be me interviewing uh, Gabriel and John Shipton, who of course are close relatives of Julian Assange and are on a crusade to get him out of prison because he's wrongfully in prison and they have a new documentary coming out. It's already out called Ithaca, which really uh, goes into detail and has the camera on them 24 seven about what it's been like basically crusading to get this innocent man freed because this guy's a first amendment hero who exposed war crimes. And that's why uh, the government has gone after him relentlessly. And so it's a very touching documentary, a humanizing documentary. We're going to talk to them about that. Um, and then, but before I get to that, and that's a, a everybody hang in there for that interview because that's a it's a very it's a good interview. Um, but man, not gonna lie to y'all, I am furious. So we just had the very first detailed, over the top smear campaign article waged against Marianne Williamson, and um, it is we're gonna get into all of it. We're gonna dive into all of it. I'm gonna break it down for you. Um, but suffice to say, and this is the most important point that everybody needs to understand. The, the people who wrote this article for Politico, more on Politico a little later, because boy, oh boy, do they have a record that they would like to hide. Okay. But they went into this going, how do we take down Marianne Williamson? How do we smear Marianne Williamson? How do we destroy Marianne Williamson's reputation? How do we like snuff out this baby of her campaign in the crib? That was the intention going into it. Now, remember, they pretend like, oh, us, bro. We're just like neutral and objective fact finders. We're like the serious media people. So we like we go into everything with an open mind and then sort of let the stories write themselves because we're really neutral and, and objective and whatnot. Nothing could be further from the truth. They had it out for her from the very beginning. The person who wrote this article was fishing around saying, how do I destroy Marianne Williamson and her campaign? Okay, so here's the article. Let me throw up uh, on screen for you. Uh, this is again in Politico. Marianne Williamson's abusive treatment of 2020 campaign staff revealed the self-help guru who is running for president again was emotionally and verbally abusive to staff, according to interviews with former employees. So, uh, I'll get into the specific points they make in a second, but understand something, guys. Politics 101 is take your opponent's strength and turn them into, turn it into their weakness. That's politics 101. So with Marianne Williamson, what do we know for sure? What do we know as a rock solid fact? In the 1980s, when everybody was running away from HIV and AIDS patients at 100 miles an hour, Marianne Williamson was holding their hands and giving them their medicine as they died and giving them love and affection as they died. So take the biggest upside of Marianne Williamson, her kindness, her sympathy, her empathy, and turn it into a weakness and go, actually, you guys might not know this. She's the worst person in the world to have ever lived ever. Wow. Now, the other portion of this is they're going to try to do what's called divide and conquer. So take the people who are more likely to support Marianne Williamson at this moment, which is like the left wing base, and try to put a wedge in between them and get a lot of the people who are already loyal supporters to go, well, I don't know. Now I need to reevaluate. So again, you take their strength and you try to turn it into a weakness. And that's what we're, we're looking at right now. So 
Here's the arguments uh, that they make. They say she preaches love and kindness, but in reality, she's mean. And uh, she yelled at staffers. And one time she got so upset that she hit a car door and injured her own hand. And uh, they have an anonymous staffer who said, oh, she threw a phone at them. But of course, Marion Williamson comes out and categorically denies it and says that never happened. And uh, it is it's libelous and it is slanderous and it's totally untrue. They also um, here's another one of the criticisms in there. She's uh, really indecisive. So she would have an event that was on the schedule. She'd be getting ready for that event and then she'd cancel that event and then she'd put that event back on and that would anger her staff. And she would like yell in the process of doing these things. Then they go on to say, again, I, this, it's amazing to me. It's uh, politics 101. Take the strength, turn it into the weakness. They say, oh, she's actually so rude that she mocks people's appearances and she goes after them for their weight. So she like, she fat shames people. These are arguments that are tailor-made to try to get like a left-wing base to abandon her when, of course, the left-wing base is like the only group in the country right now that's already sort of solid supporters. Turn your strength into your weakness. That's what they're trying to do here. It is crystal clear. Yet again, this is something that she categorically denies. The only thing in the article that she doesn't deny is when she hurt her hand because she was so mad, she hit a car door, she hurt her own hand. Now, notice something. This isn't about, oh my God, she was physically violent with any of her staffers physically violent with any other person. No, the the strongest claim they make against her vis-a-vis other people is she yells and she's mean and she's not the the kindest to her own staffers, which again, she categorically denies. Now, by the way, there's all this anonymous. There's one person in the article that they actually like give the identity. You ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. It's uh, her former Iowa State director, who by the way, used to work for Bernie's campaign, comes out and he verifies it. He's like, yeah, she's mean. She's terrible to her own people. Uh, you know, it's, it's inexcusable. I, you know, I'd never allow something like that. The same dude in this article, they even admit it. Why was he let go from Bernie Sanders campaign? Because he allegedly forcibly kissed somebody who worked underneath him. So the one person that you actually cite in the article is a dude who himself, according to your own admission, has a little bit of a sketchy history. But you're supposed to take his word like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is golden. So um, another thing they say is she allegedly floated monitoring staffers' phone, but she never, phones, but she never did it. Now, one of the passages that they have in here uh, is kind of amazing because it undermines the rest of their arguments. They say, quote, still, her behavior came as a shock to most of her 2020 campaign staff, the majority of whom had backgrounds working in politics and only knew of Williamson through her best-selling books and public speaking events, encouraging people to harness the power of love and learn to forgive. So let me decode that for you. We reached out to like 100 people to try to get them to shit on Marianne Williamson and tank Marianne Williamson's campaign. We were only able to find a few people who would do it. And we're going to slyly acknowledge that by saying... Hey, most of the people actually liked her and they were really shocked to hear these allegations. So we're going to put a passage about that as the rest of the article is just totally, absolutely dragging her reputation through the through the mud and smearing her relentlessly. So it, now you want to hear another example. Here's how, you know, they're full of shit and they have an agenda and they went into this to try to take her down. They describe her anger. This is a direct quote from the article. They describe her anger as, quote. It would be foaming, spitting 
uncontrollable rage. Foaming? Her anger was foaming. She would be foaming, foaming at the mouth. So like, like a cartoon wolf or something. You, you have to make it sound more realistic if you're going to go for these gutter smear campaigns. You, ha- you can't go that over the top because then everybody knows you're full of shit. Okay, now let's take a minute and talk about Politico. Politico is the hack of all hack outlets. It is the epitome of the swamp. So the guy who uh, bought it recently and owns it, uh, Matthias Dopfner, he's the new Politico owner. Uh, now he said when he bought it, who, me, bro? I'm like nonpartisan. I'm like apolitical. I'm sort of a centrist. I'm above the fray. And then Washington Post uncovered his emails where he said, and I quote, pray for Trump to become president again in 2020. Quote, no American administration in 50 years has done more than Trump. This is the outlet that wants you to think they're credible. This is the outlet. By the way, another story that uh, I've covered in the past about Politico from about a year or so ago. Apparently, they demand loyalty to, quote, capitalism and Israel from all employees. This is on the record. This was reported. Politico demands loyalty to capitalism and Israel. But they are serious and they're just giving people facts and information. And there, there wasn't an agenda with this, this rank attempt to smear Marianne Williamson. So, guys, I'm going to make this as simple as possible for everybody. My experience with Justice Democrats uh, actually lends me a lot of credibility to talk about an issue like we're witnessing right now. Okay. When I was with Justice Democrats, they tried, they used the same playbook against us when we had just gotten off the ground. So myself and Jank were, you know, we were co-founders of it. We're at the top of it with a couple other people. And you had some right-wing outlet dig up Jank's old blogs from back when he was a conservative in the 1990s. And in those blogs, he said things that were cringy. And one of the things he did, and this is ironic, he was taking a shot at himself by writing this line, but he said something along the lines of the genes of women are obviously flawed because they don't want to, they don't want to breed with me as much as they should. It was like a self-deprecating, like, well, obviously women are flawed because they don't want me, right? And people, they took that, put the quote on paper, ran the articles along with other cringe quotes from Jenk. And it was like a nuclear bomb went off. And there was a mutiny from the Justice Democrat staff where they said, look, either he goes or we all go. And Jank put his ego aside and he said, okay, you know what? If that's the choice, you guys are on the ground. You guys are doing all the important work vis-a-vis the candidates and the campaigns. You know, this is, this is my baby, this, this thing here. But if I got to let it go for the better of the movement, I will do it. And he stepped aside. But the attempt, and it was right-wing outlets that dug up these blog posts, it was a divide-and-conquer attempt that worked. And of course, the, the staffers fell for it hook, line, and sinker. They fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Because it appealed to the things that they say they care about. Oh, you guys say you're, you know, you hate sexism? Well, what if I told you the guy at the head of this organization is the biggest sexist in the world? And again, oh, Got him, right? And so we're seeing the same thing going on here. Take her strength, that she's a phenomenally kind and empathetic person, and turn it into a weakness. 
say, actually, she's not that. I don't care that she held the hands of AIDS patients as they died in the 1980s and, and gave them their medicine. I don't care that she was the only one there for them. She yelled. She yelled at her staffers and stuff. By the way, if you really want to have this conversation about serious issues with candidates, are you aware that Donald Trump is accused of rape and sexual assault from, over, from dozens of women? Are you aware that Joe Biden was accused of rape? Are you aware that Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war, which led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians? Are you aware that Donald Trump attacked a top Iranian commander, nearly sparking World War III, when that commander was in the field fighting ISIS? Are we really having a conversation about whether or not she yelled? There was that video that went viral of Joe Biden, where he was like, he called somebody at a, at a town hall of his like, all right, fat, you want to fight me? He called him like fat or fats, and then he wanted to fight him. You could easily take that moment, put it in quotes, and then spin it as like, oh, this man is so impolite and rude, and he's got anger problems. But they don't do that because they like the establishment politicians. They agree with the establishment politicians. It's Marianne Williamson, who's an outsider, who they're trying to paint as crazy and somebody you should never support. Well, guess what? Even if every single thing in this article was true, which it's not, she's the only one in the race who wants Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars. And we can go on and on. Getting money out of politics, so ending the corruption. She's the only one that wants to address the real issues. So even if your little shitty smear piece was accurate, which it's not, I would still sit here and say, don't care. Don't care. Sometimes I want somebody who does get loud and aggressive to deal with the military industrial complex, which, by the way, that brings me to my final point. And this is probably the most important point. I lied. I have two more points, but this is probably the most important point. Responsible statecraft is a phenomenal outlet. They do a lot of reporting on you know, foreign policy, but also money and politics and things of that nature. Well, they reported here. This is from November 16th, 2022. Let me read this to you. Politico's national security and foreign policy coverage took some heat late last year for being sponsored in part by the defense industry and the Beltway media outlet leaned into its relationship with weapons makers this week by prominently featuring industry leaders at its 2022 defense summit in Washington. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and another and another less well-known firm, Improbable U.S. Defense and National Security, sponsored the summit, but their company's names were not just displayed prominently at the summit and on its website. As is somewhat unusual, or excuse me, usual for this kind of event, Politico also gave a representative from each company a prominent role in the summit by participating in what is what it dubbed executive conversations. Except the three panels were less conversational and more of an infomercial, as these as the Politico interviewer in each appeared to rattle off a series of scripted questions that let the companies explain why their products are necessary for the defense of the United States. It was essentially similar to sponsored content one might see on some mainstream news websites. Let me put that in layman's terms for you. Politico is an outlet that will report on foreign policy. And right underneath the title, it says sponsored by Lockheed Martin, sponsored by Raytheon. They have run articles saying, hey, here's why we should attack Syria. Here's why we should do war with country X or country Y. And by the way, this is paid for by Lockheed Martin or by Raytheon. And we're supposed to take you seriously? We're supposed to take you seriously. When you are, there are no words 
to adequately and accurately describe how loathsome you are. You are everything wrong with journalism. You're not journalism. You are a paid mouthpiece for the military industrial complex. And by the way, paid mouthpiece for the oil industry because they have donors from them as well. From Big Pharma because they have donors from them as well. You're taking money from all of these gigantic industries, these massively profitable industries, and then you're doing sycophantic coverage of those industries when those corporations and those billionaires are the problem in society. If you're not reporting critically on them, that says a hell of a lot about you now, doesn't it? But no, you save all the vitriolic bullshit for an outsider like Marianne Williamson. Oh, she was mean to her staff. <laughs> pathetic. You guys are pathetic. Final point. Um, another thing that uh, Politico did. Now, uh, Andrew Yang ran not too long ago for mayor of New York City, and he was leading for a while. And now, look, I'm no fan of Andrew Yang. You know, his politics have evolved over the years in a way that's significantly worse than where he was originally. We don't need to get into that. But the bottom line is they had an article about Andrew Yang titled Yang Under Fire After Laughing at Question About Choking Women. Now, let me explain to you what happened here and explain to you how Politico covered it. Somebody uh, asked Andrew Yang at an event. Um, if he, quote, choked bitches. And then he goes on to say, he asked, quote, while he's fucking bitches, can he keep his Tims on? Andrew Yang awkwardly responded, I, I, th I think it's purely up to your partner. And then when he heard this guy ask the choke bitches question, he kind of nervously laughed and swatted him away. It was like, hey, Andrew Yang, do you choke bitches? He's like, <laughs> and, and, next. That was his reaction. Politico wrote a hit piece on this, going after Andrew Yang for how he responded to that question. And they go on to say, um, but Yang's engagement with the question after he used the word bitches and his laughter at the suggestion of violence against women drew comparisons from rival campaigns and critics to former President Donald Trump and Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is facing a litany of sexual harassment accusations from former and current staffers. They smeared Andrew Yang for awkwardly laughing and hand-waving away a troll question about, quote, choking bitches. This is who Politico is. They will blatantly and brazenly lie right in front of your eyes and then call you crazy if you question it. They're nothing but at a hack establishment rag, and they're doing the dirty work and the bidding of the establishment. That's what they are. So this should be a rallying cry, if anything. The best you could come up with after doing all this digging with the intent to take down Marianne Williamson is she, she raised her voice and she hurt her own hand one day. Ooh, oh, that's so scary, bro. That comes nowhere near the plethora of politicians in office right now accused of sexual assault, sexual harassment and endless war crimes. Never mind the endless corruption. OK, but Politico has nothing to say about any of that because they themselves are the biggest uh, recipient of corporate money and billionaire money. And they're the biggest player in this game of corruption. All right. So now let's move on. So Ben Shapiro is uh, was doing, I guess, a live stream the other night or something. He was answering a question from somebody in his audience and he was asked about uh, school lunches. Buckle up. I'm sure you see where this is going. It ain't pretty. Watch. 
If government can protect kids from the sick radical left, shouldn't they also protect kids from hunger? Wouldn't it make sense to strengthen food stamps and have school lunch be free since some kids are in school lunch debt? Uh, well, I mean, if you are a parent, school lunches are not going to solve the problem of child hunger at any serious level. If, if there is a problem of children actually starving, that is a child endangerment scenario to which CPS needs to be called. Uh, if you're talking about like actual child starvation, the truth is it does not take that much money to feed a child. I know I have three of them. Uh, the, you should be feeding your child before you feed yourself. It's that simple. There's a much deeper problem at work than school lunches if kids are legitimately starving. That is uniquely psychotic, if you ask me. So if a kid is food insecure, CPS should take the kids from their parents instead of just serving them free lunch at school or free breakfast at school or both. Okay, even from his perspective of almost small government, small government, all about small government. It is way bigger government and more authoritarian government to take kids from their parents. That's way bigger. And by the way, that would cost so much more. If every time a kid was food insecure, you take the kids from their parents? When he, he acts like the most straightforward solution is not straightforward and not a solution at all. Like, hey, we have some kids who are food insecure. Definitely don't give them free food. Definitely do not give them free food. Why? Why? We just had the Fed jump in when Silicon Valley bank crashed and they said $300 billion backstop. Here you go. Take it. End of conversation. You're good. You're good. FDIC jumped in and said, we'll bail you out. Then the Fed was like, no, we'll bail you out. That's when rich people suffer some consequences of their own actions. But when a kid is hungry, oh, definitely don't give them food. Definitely don't give them free meals. Definitely don't do that. We can spend billions of dollars. No, scratch that. Trillions of dollars on endless war, for example, on expanding our military budget, on corporate bailouts or tax cuts for the rich. All that's a duh, all that's a given. But God forbid you take a fraction of that money to feed hungry kids. By the way, you know how many kids are food insecure in America? Nine million. So Ben Shapiro's solution is have nine million kids taken from their parents? That's your solution. And you think that would save money and that would be smaller government and that would be more pro-family values? No, Ben, you are wrong on every level. The answer is obviously free breakfast, free lunch. By the way, there was a period in COVID where we did exactly that. And you know what? It worked phenomenally well. Just like, by the way, the expanded child tax credit. Anybody who's claiming they are pro-family, if they are not pro-expanded child tax credit, they're lying to you. Because when we did the expanded child tax credit, you know what happened? Child poverty was cut about 50%. Now, unfortunately, that was temporary because it had a sunset provision, so it went away and nobody put it back. You know, shame on the people who didn't put it back, of course. But when we had it in place, it was solving problems. If you could cut child poverty about 50%, you can cut it 100%. It's just a matter of having the will to do it and doing the legislation. But God forbid you do something like that, Ben Shapiro would be outraged. He's pro-family unless you mean helping families in any material way, unless you mean free child care, uh, you know, free maternity leave, paid vacation time by law, all those paid sick days, all those things. No, how dare you? No. But I love families and I'm pro-family. But I want 9 million kids to be taken from their parents because their parents don't make enough money. So in other words, punish people for poverty. Kidnap their kids because they are poor. Kidnap their kids because they're poor. What a sick joke, man. What a sick, sick dude you are. Could you imagine responding like this? He said, quote, school lunches are not going to solve the problem of child hunger at any serious level. It will 100% do that. 
If you give free breakfast at school and free lunch at school, you're getting a hell of a lot closer to solving the issue of child hunger. You just have to throw dinner in that bitch and you're good. Dinner, snack or two, you're good. Straightforward solutions are not actually real or correct. No. God, what a loser. It really is amazing. And I'm sure he's convinced himself that somehow I'm being the logical one. I'm using, I'm using facts and logic to own you into saying, I think kids should be taken away from their parents. Owned. All right, Ben, you do you. So there was a pretty intense incident that happened the other day. A Russian fighter jet forced down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. So this is reported in CNN. A Russian fighter jet forced down a U.S. Air Force drone over the Black Sea on Tuesday after damaging the propeller of the American MQ-9 Reaper drone, according to the U.S. military. The Reaper drone and two Russian Su-27 aircraft were flying over international waters over the Black Sea on Tuesday when one of the Russian jets intentionally flew in front of and dumped fuel on the unmanned drone several times. A statement from U.S. European Command said, the aircraft then hit the propeller of the drone, prompting U.S. forces to bring down the MQ-9 drone down in international waters. Pentagon spokesman uh, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder added Tuesday that the Russian aircraft flew in the vicinity of the drone for 30 to 40 minutes before colliding just after 7 a.m. Central European time. So in step, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who gives you his thoughts on how the U.S. should handle this. They shot down our drone. What should our answer be? Well, we should hold them accountable and say that if you ever get near another uh, U.S. set flying in international waters, your airplane would be shot down. What would Ronald Reagan do right now? He would, he would start shooting Russian planes down if they were threatening our assets. Ronald Reagan wouldn't know where he was. He would call his wife Greg or something. That's what he would do. <laughs> that, that's, everybody knows Reagan at the, time, at the end of his time in office was struggling and wasn't cognitively there. But what would Reagan do? He says, shoot down the Russian jet. What are we talking about here? The way that he casually, nonchalantly, flippantly, just blasé calls for World War III is astonishing to me. It's astonishing to me. Dude, that is World War III. They see instances like this and their main thought isn't, hey, man, maybe we should like not be anywhere near there at all. Their main thought is, we're going to shoot you down next time. OK, and then if the Russians respond in kind, they shoot us down, then we shoot them down. And then, you know, the things that we're shooting down get bigger and more powerful. And then next thing you know, everything spirals out of control. We're already on that path, man. We're already on that path. Now, by the way, this is not me saying that, you know, Based comrade Vladimir Putin is being defensive by invading Ukraine. I don't believe that at all. He clearly was on the offense. He clearly was the aggressor. He even said in his speech uh, announcing the you know special invasion or whatever he called it, special mission, whatever the terminology was that he used, that like, yeah, we think Ukraine is a fake state and we kind of want to go back to the glory of the Russian empire. So he said it, right? He's, he's being the aggressor in Ukraine. But the question arises... How much should the U.S. be directly involved? Because once you start dealing with two nuclear armed power, the stakes change. I'm in favor of Ukraine defending itself. They have a right to self-defense. So I'm on their side on that front, man. But the other thing I'm in favor of is making sure we don't spiral out of control and get the U.S. and Russia into World War III and also talking. I know, crazy, wild idea. Let's have a conversation. Let's use negotiation and diplomacy to try to de-escalate. Could you imagine in the era of nuclear weapons thinking that's a crazy position? 
thinking that talking is a crazy position, you would have to be, your head would have to be so thoroughly lodged inside your anus to think that that's like, oh, idiot, how dare you want to have a conversation? It's crazy. It's crazy. But Lindsey Graham is 100% team um, Putin equals Hitler. There's no deal that could ever be made. If you even want to talk, you you are Neville Chamberlain. Um, and so I think we should just start shooting down Russian planes. And by the way, I, I honestly think he's not even he's not smart enough to realize what that means. He's not smart enough to understand there will be retaliation on their side of it. And then what do we do? Well, then he wants to escalate again and retaliate again. He's too dumb to understand the stakes. This is a guy who has never met a war he didn't like. In his case, it is quite literal. I've never heard him say pump the brakes. The last time we talked about Lindsey Graham, he was on Fox News calling for the U.S. invading Mexico illegally. Why? To, to call the drug cartels terrorists and start a war against them, even though the president of Mexico is like, don't you dare consider invading our country. Do you realize how insane that is? This is a guy who also wants war with Iran. He wants war with North Korea. He was pro the Iraq war, pro the Afghanistan war. When he ran for president, LOL, by the way, he said in an interview on CNBC, when he was asked, well, when do you get out? He says, you don't get out. You just stay there. Excuse you? So start wars and then like plant a flag as this is an endless war. Look, he's a neocon war hawk stooge and he's paid by the military industrial complex. So the more he pushes for war, the more the U.S. does war, the more his buddies over at Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon get paid and the more he gets those campaign contributions. It is deeply, deeply nefarious. And again, the ease with which these morons are out there like, World War Three sounds good. And he's not going to have to go and fight. It's going to be young, brave American men and women that are going to have to go fight and die, by the way. Old men talk and young men die. That's war. And there's a great example of it right here. Lindsey Graham is a colossal joke, and that's clear. All right, guys. So uh, that's all we got for the intro here. Um, just want to remind everybody real quick. So. Uh, Crystal's here for the first part of the interview, but then she had a family emergency and she had to uh, get out of here. And then I take over the interview the rest of the time. But we're talking to John and Gabriel Shipton, who have a new documentary out about what it's been like fighting for Julian Assange and trying to get him out of prison. Because, of course, Julian Assange is an American hero. He's you know wrongly imprisoned and he basically told the truth and did real journalism, which is why he's behind bars. The establishment did not like being embarrassed by him. That's the bottom line. So uh, here's the conversation. Here's the discussion. Enjoy. Can we talk about your contact with Julian through his childhood? It's part of the story. I think it isn't important. part of the story. Yeah. The story is that, I, you know, I'm attempting in my own modest way yeah. to get Julian out of the ship. Julian Assange is the hero of our time. He was the darling of the left. All of a sudden, he's a puppet of Russia. My name is John Shipton. I'm Julian Assange's father. WikiLeaks found that Julian Assange has been arrested. One of the most notorious and controversial figures in custody. Assange will remain behind bars until that extradition hearing, which has been set down for the end of February. I urge the Department of Justice to drop the charges. The maximum jail sentence of 175 years. Because he published the truth. How does it feel to be the father of such a controversial figure, somebody who's known around the world? 
Was that him on the phone before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you talking about on a, on a kind of regular basis? If Julian is extradited to the United States to face these charges, he will be the first, but not the last. What are your worst fears? That it just collapses under the strain. It looks as though what journalists do for a living is seen to be a criminal act. Shit to keep it up, man. Thank you. I wish I had your energy, I really do. I'm done, I'm done. I'm done. I mean, I'm fucking worn out. Why do you think there's not a great public love and support? This is really, truly a good question. What's at stake? If he goes down, so will journalism. But if people walked away from this film understanding you, how would you feel about that? We're here, and this has only come about because we have a child in the ship, mm. and we want to get him out. Gabriel and John, it's so great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. Congratulations, first of all, on the documentary, which I really enjoyed. Um, John, how's the how's the tour going? How many stops? Where have you been? Where are you going? What's the reception been like? <laughs> you know, we used to read, we were taught American uh, political history and they had the whistle stop tour. Yes. So you get on a train <laughs> and it'd stop at every station. Um, I remember... Uh, reading in uh, Gore Vidal's book that uh, Truman received on one of his whistle-stop tours uh, a suitcase with a million dollars cash in it. It's yet to happen. (laughs) Still waiting on that Uh, moment. Wouldn't hold your breath for that one. So, uh, I mean, let's start very basic here. Where can people watch Ithaca? I know it just came out not too long ago. So if you jump on our website, ithacamovie.com, that's I-T-H-A-K-A, movie.com, uh, you can go to the watch the film section and it'll have all the screenings uh, that are playing around the US. Uh, we're playing in Alamo Draft House theatres all around the country. Uh, and, yeah, we've got a Q&A tour schedule on there. Um, we're doing 52 in-person screening events, wow. um, film festivals, uh, speaking at universities. We were at uh, University of Maryland yesterday, Georgetown the day before. Uh, so, yeah, if you jump on the website, Ithaca Movie, dot com uh you'll see all the schedule and and where to watch the film fantastic um i want to get into some of the details of the film in a minute but first i wonder if you could update us on how is julian doing what's the status of his case and have you seen any movement here in washington well julian you know is coming up to his fourth year in the maximum security prison uh, on on april 11th he'll be there it'll be his the fourth year anniversary of uh, the time that he went into the, into that Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. So uh, at the end of October, Julian submitted his final appeal in the UK courts, uh, which was an appeal against uh, the June 17 decision of uh, Priti Patel, who's like the Home Secretary or the uh, head of the State Department in the UK, who signed off on his extradition. And Julian has this final appeal and all, all the, the judges, the High Court judges have had all the material that they need to make a decision on whether they will hear the appeal or not. And they've, t- they've taken now five months next. Uh, so it, it'll be six months next month uh, that Julian is sort of just languishing in, in, a, in a prison waiting for these High Court judges uh, to, you know, decide whether they'll hear the appeal or not. So this ongoing uh, 
legal process. Uh, we call it a veil, uh, a thin veil that hangs in front of uh, Julian's persecution. You know, he's in this prison. He's not a convicted criminal. Uh, he shares a cell block uh, with convicted murderers. 20% out of the 800 prisoners there in the prison, 20% are convicted murderers, wow. uh, convicted terrorists. Uh, he is only one of two people uh, who are re- what they call remand uh, prisoners in that prison. Um, so please. <laughs> uh, tell people, to Crystal's question, is there any movement that you see among uh, the political class in D.C., movement in the right direction? Yes. Yeah, there is. Uh, so at the moment, uh, re- uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has a uh, dear colleague's letter calling on uh, the Garland uh, DOJ uh, to drop the charges against Julian Assange. Uh, that letter, I think, has four sign-ons at the moment from within the Progressive Caucus, and we're really pushing now, um, you know, lobbying uh, people who have, have come out in support previously, uh, like Ro Khanna, uh, to join this join this effort from the Progressive Caucus. And this follows on... This letter follows on uh, on November 30th last year, uh, the five major uh, prestige newspapers that collaborated with Julian on the diplomatic cables. Uh, on the 10th year anniversary of the release of the diplomatic cables, these five news organisations, which include the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, Der Spiegel in Germany, Le Monde in France and El Pais in Spain, uh, sent a joint letter uh, to the Garland to Merrick Garland, calling on the endless prosecutions of Julian Assange to come to an end. And shortly, 10 days after that, the Press Freedom Coalition, which is all the largest groups uh, in the US, uh, civil liberties groups, uh, human rights groups, uh, 24 of them, uh, they followed on with their letter uh, to uh, Garland, calling on uh, this prosecution to come to an end. Because of what it means for press freedom, uh, and civil liberties in this country. So we see this movement in Congress following on from those uh, huge, uh, you know, a, a letter from the New York Times, the publisher there, is a really big moment in this case. And we can see that momentum flowing into Congress now, finally, which is great. Yeah, that, that seems like a big deal, by the way. That seems like a huge deal that all these big newspapers are signing on, the human rights groups are signing on, the press freedom groups are signing on. And, you know, I, I think that's a good sign because in D.C., those are outlets that they respect. And so when they hear that from them, it sort of sets a different tone for everything. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and also to have criticism or questions being raised from members of Joe Biden's own party. And of course, John, it's always important for people to remember that under the Obama-Biden administration originally, it's not like they were kind to Julian. It's not like they liked Julian. It's not like they didn't (laughs) cause their own abuses of Julian. But they ultimately looked at the case and said, we cannot go forward with a prosecution, even though they really wanted to, without criminalizing all of journalism. And so, Gabriel, you were indicating that's sort of the tenor of the letter is saying, hey, this was, you know, Trump era DOJ got way on over their skis here. And they, you know, famously were very hostile to journalism overall. We need to go back to the Obama Biden view of this case and end this prosecution. Yeah, yeah, that. It's gratifying to see the the New York Times line up behind Julian after spending uh, under Bill Keller some considerable effort to 
to smear him. I just remind your listeners that uh, they, uh, Johnny come lately. Uh, we were with you a year ago and they've sort of caught on uh, and understood that uh, the their stature will be considerably reduced and consequently their power will disappear um, if this uh, prosecution under the Espionage Act goes ahead of a publisher. It's really important to keep in mind that the constraint of comment reduces the stature of news organisations and the consequence of that makes them... Uh, vulnerable to attack by certain sections of the the national security apparatus. So, um, tell me, tell people a little bit about uh, Ithaca. Was there like a camera following you around twenty four seven? How exactly did it work? <laughs> He's still here. He's over in the corner. <laughs> I didn't notice. I didn't notice. <laughs> so, That's a new guy in the studio. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, there was. Now uh, I. I because this Gabrielle um, involved, I I took no notice. You know, you just utilise trust, and so they they do what's necessary uh, to put together a film, which is I'm told fascinating, and uh, reveals the work of a family devoted to um, achieving. Justice for Julian Assange. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that comes through, Gabriel, and um, you know, it's obviously the, the principles of free speech and journalism and publishing, and all of those are paramount. But what you really take away from the film is this is also a human being who there. By the way, to your point earlier, John, there was an explicit you know, attempt to completely dehumanize him um, in the eyes of the American public by a lot of mainstream outlets. And so you are reminded this is this is a son, this is a brother, this is a husband, this is a father who's trying to raise his kids while being, you know, in a, a prison cell. Um, talk to us about, you know, your decision to to take the documentary in that direction. Well, it came, you know, it came about in 2019, uh, you know, just when Julian was taken into the into the prison, um, and he was in a very bad way, uh, and we went to see him, and you know, we I left the I went with John and John Pilger, another journalist, and left the prison that day, feeling like that that could be the last time we actually see Julian. You know, I felt the situation. Uh, was that dire and it really was about you know taking control of the narrative you know if you're not going to tell your story or or someone else will do it for you and that's what's sort of been happening uh for a very long time in Julian's case and so it was really you know taking control of that and and telling uh, the story of Julian's persecution uh from exactly how his family understood it and saw it and at the time, John and Stella were travelling around, or John was travelling around Europe advocating for Julian's release, and it just seemed uh, the logical path. You know, a fighter, a father fighting for his son uh, seemed like the big door entry for people to come into this story and understand it on an emotional level uh, because we get so clouded after this 10 years of dehumanisation uh, and demonisation that the waters have really been so muddied in this case 
And if you get down to this sort of essence, this emotional journey or emotional story that people can connect with, uh, I think we can sort of break down those barriers a bit and give them some information, some information that they might not know. And that's the response we've been getting from audiences, uh, people coming up to us saying, oh, my God, you know, I didn't, I didn't even realise that this was going on, that it was at this point. Uh, and, and that is really satisfying that, you know, people are actually seeing the movie and getting out of it, for what, or getting out of it what we intended. Uh, it was also a way uh, to break down the barriers of the sort of media gatekeepers, if you will, uh, you know, in Australia, there was a lot of resistance uh, when we were making the film uh, from these government bodies who do a lot of the funding, also mm. uh, the Australian public broadcaster who eventually took the film and showed it on their channel. A lot of resistance from them uh, for a film about Julian. Uh, there hadn't been anything positive or anything, uh, you know, pro-Julian on those channels for 10 years. And so a way to break down that resistance uh, was to, uh, you know, follow John and follow Stella and, and their story. And, uh, you know, we got some very strange comments from, from these sorts of people when they watch the film. They're like, oh, it's not really about Julian. Mm. So, like, they were okay <laughs> with showing it, you know. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so. Well, what is, what is the view of Julian? I mean, I'm very acquainted with the way Julian has been portrayed in American media. What is the view of Julian in Australia? The new Australian prime minister came out in support of ending his prosecution, is my recollection. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. the, and the, the tables have really turned in Australia uh, since, you know, since Julian was imprisoned and, you know, John has been campaigning uh, for many, many years there, uh, advocating for Julian and, and trying to get the, the right message out. Uh, so the la our last poll that we did in Australia, 88% of people in Australia agreed that Julian should be brought home. And you can see that uh, flowing through into the political realm. Uh, you know, there's over a quarter of the Australian Parliament who are in the Friends of Julian Assange group uh, from all parties, right, left, centre, uh, green, all, all the parties are, are, are members of that group. The Australian Prime Minister has, you know, come out saying enough is enough uh, and actually said that he has made representations uh, to the Biden administration to bring the prosecution to an end. So you see that popular support flowing through into the political into the political realm in Australia. And really, you know, the Australian government is the the only one who can represent Julian in an international diplomatic solution because he's an Australian citizen. Sorry about that, guys. Crystal had a family emergency and she had to rush out of here, but uh, I'm going to continue the interview. So... Um, let me ask you this. It sounds like what you're describing is uh, now we have a very pro-Julian sentiment in Australia. Do you get the sense that the United States is coming along on that? Uh, are they still lagging very far behind? Do you see a difference between, say, the public's reaction versus the political establishment's reaction? Talk a little bit about what the sense is like in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis Julian. Uh, gee, the... Um, just to give some indication, two serious contenders for the Democratic presidency nomination, Marianne Wilkinson and Robert Kennedy Jr., are both friends and supporters. So it's a taking very high point of uh, political life on, on the Democratic side. 
it's two serious contenders to the presidency, you can you get an indication that there is considerable support, particularly as it covers fundamental issues uh, of concern to the body politic. Uh, that's uh, civil liberties and the uh, great civilizational artifact of the United States Constitution, the First Amendment. Those two items coming to the fore um, and carrying along uh, Julian Assange's uh, persecution. Uh, so were there any issues in the U.S. in terms of getting theaters to pick it up? Uh, did, did that happen here as well? Yeah, I mean, we've uh, really taken a sort of grassroots approach uh, with it. The Alamo Draft House is the only major chain uh, that has that has picked us up. Um, funnily enough, they're known for, uh, you know, supporting, um, you know, this true art of film, right? Like filmmakers, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino premieres his films at Alamo Draft Houses. So, you know, I think having it, having the film shown there in those theatres uh, just was a really, a really great tick of approval from a cinematic uh, point. Uh, to so, but yeah, we've we've um, we've managed to book these events and book these theaters. But it, yeah, it's been a struggle, and you know, but but we just keep pushing forward, and and we've been able to, I think, really make a an impact and and do this grassroots tour, build the profile of the film. You know, there's been reviews in Variety. LA Times um, that that really build up the profile and people actually knowing about it, um, but yeah, we're not. Um, you know, Netflix. We got some comments back from Netflix saying, "Oh, it's not a not a subject we want to get in the middle of." Mm. Uh, so we we do get that sort of pushback uh, from these sort of revolving door media companies. What's the reaction been from the public from people who have seen the film? Very moved, you know. People are very moved, uh, enraged. Um, you know, Oliver Stone uh, watched it, and he said, you know, he was enraged. Uh, he was very moved. Found it very powerful. Uh, so that is generally um, the reaction from people. Also, that that reaction, you know, they didn't know what was going on, and and sometimes uh, we see people leaving the theater in tears because uh, they realize. Um, their sort of world has been flipped and everything that they've read and believed, uh, suddenly they understand that they've been lied to and and deceived when it comes to Julian Assange. And so uh, I think you can trigger this um, intense emotional reaction among people and, uh, you know, we've seen people crying for five minutes after watching the film uh, just because it's deeply moved them and and, and you know, shook them. Uh, so much so yeah it's one thing for like myself as a political junkie i do think about it at a macro level in terms of free speech and a free press and all these issues and all these principles but to the point that you guys were making earlier when you humanize it and you personalize it that i feel like has the potential to reach a much bigger audience an audience of people who are not political who are not political at all who are just regular people living their lives a, a normie perspective to a real human story um, is something that can sort of break through. And we've seen that as well in terms of 
you know, uh, crossing partisan lines. There's people who are, like you said, in the center, left, right, all who have the same position vis-a-vis Julian. Uh, let me ask you this, John. How is Julian's health now? Uh, not the best. Um, it's uh, up and down, as uh, of course, is uh, the potential of uh, the court cases uh, brought forward will free him and that lifts the mood and the consequence lifts his uh, physical well-being as well. Um, yeah, th- just a, a comment on the, the, the normies. They're pure gold and they have been, you know, everything we do over the last six years uh, is on the shoulders of those supporters uh, financially, uh, spiritually and emotionally, um, that uh, circumstance of uh, support, uh, there is, we discern, you know, after being on the road for years and years, we discern there's a sort of hunger for uh, in people's breasts for justice, to see justice and a revulsion at injustice. And that uh, um, circumstance, when the matter of uh, the persecution of Julian Assange is exposed, they join us, uh, join together with us as uh, fighters for uh, the demonstration of justice. Also, I wouldn't underestimate uh, the concerns over civil liberties and um the First Amendment, uh, how do you characterize that as free speech? Because um, we all like to have a, a chat over a beer or a barbecue or a dinner party, and we all like to be able to bring to our friends and family an understanding or a little bit of fresh information. Um, and we call that, it goes under the political rubric of free speech, but for for us, uh, living day to day, it comes under the capacity to speak to each other frankly and, and with a little bit of knowledge and as a consequence bring us all to a greater understanding of where the family stands and uh, uh, what the government policy is. And And the whole point of the First Amendment is specifically to protect the kind of speech that Julian is engaged in. It's specifically to challenge power, to challenge authority, to say, hey, here's some uncomfortable facts that they might be trying to hide from you, but you know what? You have a right to know them because you're, a, in this case, taxpaying citizen of the U.S. government. So um, it's almost darkly ironic in a way that the exact kind of speech which the First Amendment set to protect is what Julian is being persecuted for. Yeah, when you can't reveal uh, when you when it's a crime to reveal a crime, you're right. ruled by criminals. I think is the is a good saying. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on that's in the film as well is uh, the surveillance footage from within uh, the embassy, and I think that really to see that uh, and have it explained in the in 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 a filmic context really uh, helps people understand the sort of. Uh, you know, what has been done against Julian. And I think it goes back to 2017 uh, when Mike Pompeo in his first speech 
as CIA director declared WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence agency and under that classification allowed uh, the CIA to carry out uh, these operations against WikiLeaks and Julian uh, similar to uh, the Iranian Secret Service or, or the Russian FSB and after that date and without any congressional oversight. So after that date, we saw the security company uh, inside the embassy that was supposed to be protecting Julian uh, was uh, co-opted into a CIA asset. Uh, there's an email from the CEO of that company that says to his employees saying, we're now working for the dark side. And what what we then saw, this is all uh, revealed to us by two leakers from inside the company uh, that they took video footage inside the embassy. Uh, they had microphones inside the women's toilets, uh, listening to Julian's privileged meetings with his lawyers, uh, with his psychologists. And that uh, data, that uh, those recordings were flown back to the US every 15 days. And this was then... You know, this was an ongoing court case and is an ongoing court case in Spain. And they actually, the Spanish judge actually summoned Mike Pompeo. Uh, obviously, he's not going to go. But uh, then, then there was a report uh, last year by these three journalists uh, for Yahoo News, a 6,000-page report that uh, did an in-depth investigation into these allegations that were coming from the Spanish court and they used 30 former intelligence sources, uh, current and former intelligence sources, uh, that sort of spilled the beans here uh, on these plots that were emanating from within Mike Pompeo's CIA, that uh, there were plans to kidnap Julian from the embassy, uh, that there were plans to murder Julian. And the plan to kidnap him from the embassy uh, actually went as high as the White House. and <laughs> The Trump White House? Yes, you know, the Trump White House. And then... So we have these reports and, and in this report, in this Yahoo News report, it says that this kidnapping plan went uh, as high as the White House and the DOJ went back and said, well, you know, you can kidnap him, but but what are you going to do with him once you've kidnapped him? Let us get some charges ready. Let us get some charges ready so that when you get him out of the embassy, uh, we can lay some charges. And so we're not stuck, uh, you know, with Julian in Guantanamo or, or, or another black site. And so that you can really see uh, the origin of uh, this no novel use of the Espionage Act uh, came out of this uh, Pompeo and Trump era uh, CIA directorship, State Department head. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mike Pompeo released his uh, book, and I don't want to promote the book. Definitely but, not, no. <laughs> but um, there is a section devoted to Julian Assange and uh, where Mike Pompeo uh, claims credit for this prosecution and also claims credit for pressuring uh, the Ecuadorians uh, to eject Julian from the, from the embassy, you know, saying we successfully lobbied the Ecuadorians to, reject, to eject uh, Julian from the embassy. Now, I think this is very important because it shows exactly that this is a political case. It was pushed on a political level uh, under the Trump administration. Now, the Garland DOJ, they claim to be, uh, you know, uh, totally um, non-political. You know, we make decisions. We're not influenced 
uh, by the Biden administration. So I think if they went and simply looked at this prosecution, uh, re-looked at it and, and saw the origin of it and saw the evidence that is on the public record, you know, from Mike Pompeo's book, et cetera, uh, this, this would be an easy, easy thing for them uh, just to sort of clear the decks with. They can say, well, this is an obvious political persecution, uh, prosecution uh, from this uh, emanating from, you know, Mike Pompeo, uh, and, you know, we're going to wind that back because of what it means uh, to press freedom, because of what it means uh, to the civil liberties of uh, and democratic rights of people in America. Do we have any indication to this point of where Merrick Garland is leaning or do we have no, has he not commented at all? Can we not surmise anything from what he said publicly so far? No, uh, he hasn't made any public statements. I mean, other than uh, that the DOJ is independent, um, the national security uh, section of the DOJ uh, are pushing forward with this prosecution, uh, and and they have been since the beginning of the Biden administration. And so, is that your sense of Biden as well? That Biden is uh, sort of casually signing off on continuing down the path of persecution and prosecution? Well, they haven't they haven't stopped it. So right. yeah, we can assume that you know if it hasn't been stopped, um, that you know they they're not. You know, it's sort of like they're pushing it through or not not physically pushing it through, but not making the effort to stop it. But as I said, I think, you know, if the DOJ looked at this in a truly independent way, as they claim, then they would see that the provenance of this prosecution is is a, is political. And, and therefore, it, it the DOJ was influenced uh, to take it on. And, and so... They should um, look at it again and and drop it for that same reason. And allow me to say, too, Mike Pompeo is a war criminal, plain and simple. He is on video bragging about the fact that he worked at the CIA. And he said, and I quote, we lied, we cheated, we stole. And he was proud of that fact. So this guy is really as loathsome uh, as they come. And uh, for him to be leading the charge in such a way as he did on this front really tells you a lot about the genesis of this case. Um, but I want to wrap up by talking a little bit again about um, the movement that we're now seeing, particularly among the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, so we have some Congressional Progressive Caucus members are now leading the charge and, and writing a letter here. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. What do you make of that? And I'd also like to help however I can in, in terms of sort of uh, prodding some of these politicians to sign on and, and get on board. And hopefully we can build some pressure and it mounts, and then it, it could force Joe Biden's hand, or maybe some Senate Democrats as well, to get on board. Well, you know, the, it's a, a great advantage to the Democrats to get hold of this issue before the other side does, um, and particularly as they're fundamental issues that will come to the fore in in the election campaign next year. Um, but and of course, that's a uh, civil liberties, which is really important in the current circumstances in the United States and uh, First Amendment issues. They are both vital issues and they're going to be carried forth into the uh, presidential election. Uh, um, you can be certain of that. So the gathering together on the Democratic side, while there is a Democratic uh, administration in the White House will be to the advantage, the political advantage and the popular advantage 
rest of the entire Democratic caucus. So uh, final question, what's it what's it been like effectively for both of you being like forced into the spotlight where, you know, you never asked for it, you didn't want it, but you're a reluctant leader for for a noble cause? I'll start with you, Gabriel. Yeah, I never imagined, I never imagined myself, you know, uh, touring America, trying to convince people to stand up for their First Amendment. Um, you know, I'm an Australian, um, I'm a filmmaker and, uh, you know, I'm just doing what I have to do, um, you know, to free Julian. But also, you know, I feel like I'm part of a, a bigger movement now. Um, you know, Julian said uh, famously that he wanted to export the First Amendment uh, to the rest of the world. And I think what we've seen now and what's been a unintended consequence of Julian's persecution is that there, there is now a worldwide uh, movement, uh, not just for the freedom of Julian Assange, but for uh, press freedoms and uh, democratic rights in all these Western democracies all around the world. So, you know, in the Greek parliament, there's a third of parliamentarians all calling for Julian's freedom. Similarly, in the UK parliament, 24, 25 parliamentarians. In Spain, in Germany, there's 70. Australia, a quarter of the parliament and the prime minister, all through Latin America, I think eight Latin American leaders now, including uh, the president of Brazil, the president of Mexico. Lula, right. Yeah, all calling for Julian's freedom. Lula and AMLO, they're both very good, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, I, I feel, you know, I feel a real joy to be part of this movement, even though, uh, even though the consequences, you know, for Julian are dire. But um, to see this movement rise up, uh, you know, the movement that Julian sort of championed and created is now rising up to save him is, you know, is... Um, you know, it feels, it's sort of very satisfying in that way. Um, yes. John, what's it like being a reluctant leader? Oh, <clears throat> don't see myself as a, a leader. Just see the feeling inside is that, you know, you're carried aloft by the concerns of what, you know, the, what we call the normies and friends and, and people who associate uh their feelings with uh, the injustice and the hunger for to see justice. Really the simplest things join us all together uh, of necessity, of course, because lots of people joining together in a movement, we require from each other simplification to join together complex ideas. You save those for the university or the professors. But uh, elegant uh, ideas which uh, encompass all of us, like justice or uh, being able to freely say this or that or, or call your neighbour uh, over for a barbecue and have a chat about what concerns you. There, what propels and compels us. Beautiful. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both for joining us. Uh, I I wish you good fortune on your journey. And just to remind everybody, definitely go check out um, Ithaca, the documentary. It's a phenomenal documentary. So thanks again, guys. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. All right, guys, that was John and Gabriel Shipton. They are uh, basically touring the world 
uh, promoting this movie, this documentary about what it's been like being family members of Julian Assange, trying to get him um, out of prison. And it's, uh, it was, it's a very emotional documentary. Um, it really humanizes them uh, and their situation. And I just want to remind everybody, because sometimes it can get lost in, in all the noise and how many layers deep we are in this conversation, but the whole reason why Julian Assange has been an enemy of the state, he's been consi considered an enemy of the state, is because of the collateral murder video. I mean, he's the guy, with the help of Chelsea Manning, he got video of the U.S. military killing innocent civilians, killing journalists, circling around, doing what's called a double tap, and killing the first responders, and laughing about it. And that video helped change the course of the war in Iraq and change the course of history. It really was an eye-opening moment for a lot of people where they realized, oh my goodness, are we looking at a new Vietnam? Because of course, with Vietnam, we had the Pentagon Papers, um, we had Mike Ravel and Daniel Ellsberg, and we learned, wow, the, the U.S. military is using Agent Orange and, and Napalm on landless peasants and innocent villagers and killing people who are not combatants in any way, shape, or form. So are we the baddies? What exactly is going on here? And there was moral outrage as a result of that. And the American people uh, didn't want their money going towards this kind of stuff, understandably. And it helped change the course of history. So Julian Assange is a hero for telling people uncomfortable facts, telling Americans what's being done with their money in their name. And the biggest crime in the D.C. establishment is embarrassing the D.C. establishment. And he exposed them for what they are. And as a result of that, he became public enemy number one. There was a massive smear campaign that hit him with all sorts of nonsense. Um, you know, he was hiding away in an embassy for a very long time. And now they're really dropping the hammer on him. So it's nice to see at this late date, you have all the, uh, you know, the big newspapers came out in his support, all of the civil liberties groups uh, and, and free press organizations and human rights groups, they came out it, in support of him. And that's definitely a wonderful thing to see. But, um, you know, the job ain't done until he's free. Uh, not only that, I mean, he should really be compensated for what he had to go through because the punishment had already, has already been far, far too severe. And um, remember, Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning. Why didn't he pardon Julian Assange? You know, I don't know. Um, people were trying to get Trump to pardon Julian Assange, but as you just learned, the Trump administration was the most hostile to Julian Assange, so that didn't happen. Um, and now we have the Biden administration and Merrick Garland, and uh, the, we know what the right thing is. We just have to hope they'll do it. And again, shout out to the few members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus who are getting the ball rolling on this and trying to reverse the ills that have been done. But we need to get way more people to sign on to that letter, way more politicians. I don't care what their ideology is. I don't care if they're on the left or the right or the far left or the far right. Um, let's try to get as many people as possible and sort of prod the administration and prod the government to do the right thing. So anyway, everybody definitely go check out Ithaca, the documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, and that's what we got for you today. Um, anyway, if you support the show, guys, uh, do me a big favor. Go to Substack, pay five bucks a month, get all the interviews and get them a day early. Everybody else can, of course, sign up on Substack for free and get the audio podcast a day later on Saturdays, typically. 
And uh, that's all I got for you. Love you guys. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.